Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three of this talk on the kidney. And this uh, part three is going to focus on the excretory phase. Remember, we spoke about cortical medullary phase and nephrographic phase. Now, let's talk about excretory phase. Now, in the excretory phase, depending what article you read, people do it between three and five minutes, maybe eight minutes. Our routine is in the four to five minute range. If we want to get... Um, UPJ evaluation, then we'll go to eight minutes. Remember, one problem with waiting too long is the contrast becomes very dense within the calyces and you get beam hardening artifact. Now, the excretory phase is critical for a number of different things. Basically, if you want to see pelvis or collecting system pathology, you need the excretory phase. I showed you examples before where tumors may only be seen in excretory phase. We spoke about infection, excretory phase, and also it's a critical phase for looking at the ureter. Now, in saying that, uh, CT was around for a long time and people were still doing IVPs. It was only with thin section CT at 16 slice and beyond where we could do reconstructions which showed the renal, pelvis, and collecting systems as if we had a uh, IVP, the so-called CT urography, that really made it possible for people to uh, really take advantage of this whole process. And you can see very nice examples. Now, again, the key to being able to do CT urography is the ability to get good opacification of the pelvis and collecting systems. There have been a number of protocols used in this regard. You can see a nice example here of a small left kidney with blunting of the calyces. You can see an example here of renal tubulectasia. People have tried all sorts of things using Lasix, giving the patients lots of IV hydration, giving the patients Lasix using compression paddles. There's a whole mess of things you can do. Reality is what we find is a lot of fluids PO before the study, then you give IV, then you wait your four or five minutes, and you get routinely very, very nice images, as you can see in this series of cases. Now, in terms of CT urography, it does help you see things. I mean, here's a case. Look at the left kidney. There's something infiltrating, and I think you should see it on those axial images and I think you should see it on the coronals as well. But one would have to admit when you go to CT urography, you really see it very, very nicely. You see that infiltration of the mid and lower pole calyces on the left, so-called transitional cell carcinoma. Very, very nice example, and you could do that. Uh, classic uh, volume rendering here, or you could switch to the uh, inverse to show it very nicely infiltrating. And again, it's just a very nice example. It's a key component of all of our hematuria studies, being able to do CT urography and being able to visualize the renal, pelvis, and collecting systems. Again, as I mentioned, we don't do compression, but you can if you want. Now, what about protocols? Let's take a step back a little bit. We mentioned, I described many different phases. Well, what do you do? Well, you would like to do, or you could do every single phase, which gives you four or five phases. But again, the issue in that situation would be radiation dose. So the question is, what do you need to do? And we'll look at some rules in a few moments. We also need to look in terms of arterial and venous phase timing. You can do bolus timing injections, and you could do tracking software. We like uniform delays. The problem, of course, with bolus timing injections is that you then have excretion of contrast in the kidney, and this may change many of the factors in looking at the kidney or renal lesions. But in a busy practice, uniform delays, 25 to 30 seconds arterial, 55, 60 seconds venous, four minutes excretory, that works perfect when you're injecting four cc's a second, 
volume of contrast in the range of 100 to 120 of Omni 350 or Visipaq 320. Now, what we do is we think about each study individually, but we have certain rules. And so, for example, if you're doing a patient evaluate a mass hematuria, you do need non-contrast scans. But you don't need to scan the entire abdomen non-contrast. Threes through the kidney will work fine. When you do cortical medullary phase imaging, you don't need to scan the entire abdomen. Do the kidneys. Look for those enhancing lesions. Look for the vascular map. And then when you leave that and you go to an excretory phase, that's where we do the entire abdomen and pelvis. That's where the ureters are nicely opacified bladder and kidneys, showing excretion of contrast. Nephrographic phase, again, we limit it to the uh, kidney. Of course, we'll cover the IVC and renal veins. But again, that's a pretty good general rule to minimize how many places we scan. Again, you could scan top to bottom on every patient in every phase, but... It's not the speed or the time it takes, but really it's the radiation dose. So we try to be careful. Protocols, we use thin sections because people want 3D mapping. And under 3D mapping, we consider CTRography. So those are our protocols. If you're doing arterial phase or venous or excretory in a 16-slice scanner, we'll stick with the 0.75 millimeter thick sections every 0.5 millimeters. And we use the same parameters on a 64-slice scanner. There, our detectors are thinner at 0.6. But again, very, very constant, very reproducible protocols. And again, remember I make the point about protocols being indeed very, very critical. So let's look at some examples. Let's look at some possibilities. Uh, one of the things we can look at, of course, is looking at the vascular anatomy. And let's start with that. Let's look at the renal arteries. And that's a very good application for CTA. Uh, many articles have been published on that, whether it's for renal donors or pre-surgical planning in partial nephrectomy. This becomes critical. There are multiple renal arteries in about a third of patients. Um, you have multiple renal arteries bilaterally in about 12% of patients. In terms of renal artery anatomy, we'll just also give some other numbers that uh, multiple renal arteries occur on the left in about a third of patients and a bit less frequently on the right side. And one of the other things that CT angiography is critical is with prehyla branching. And the way you define prehyla branching is that within two centimeters of the origin of the renal artery, prehyla branching is very important in donor nephrectomies because when you do it laparoscopically, you need to have enough space to clamp the vessel. So in terms of the success of CT, even at four slice levels, it was pretty successful in the high 90s. And this was one of the more impressive articles. There's other articles, Satomi Kawamoto from Hopkins. We basically were almost perfect. We missed one little tiny vessel, and that was at 16 slice CT. And every single article that's followed, basically, in conclusion, MDCT enables highly accurate assessment of anatomy in living donor candidates. So you can see that that article had about uh, multiple renal arteries in 26% of patients. So again, very, very important. And again, I'm just giving you some of the uh, articles. One thing I show this article is because the authors made a very important comment, something that we've always said, is that when you want to look at a case like this, this 3D imaging is critical. You can look at all the axials you want. You're going to miss renal arteries. You go to 3D volume rendering, you will see those renal arteries, every single one of them. And particularly the more complicated the vessel, the more important the 3D is. And the other issue would be is time savings. It definitely makes your life easier in doing it that way. So it's really critical, and it's what the surgeons want. 
they're not looking at a thousand axial slices or more they just want that 15 to 20 3d maps that i provide for them and you can see another article CTA enabled excellent preoperative detection of arterial and venous anatomy for laparoscopic nephrectomy. So again, multiple articles, same answer, no issues. And again, uh, here's one more article from Hopkins. So we really have looked very, very carefully at this. Uh, again, the, po the point is shown nicely on the images. So look at this image. Look at the right kidney. How would you describe that? The patient has three renal arteries. There's one from just above the... Uh, common iliac on the right to the lower pole. There's one to the mid pole, which then branches by three, and there's one to the upper pole that has prehyla branching. Well, you can scribble it out and you could dictate it. You can do a whole mess of things. But I tell you, you give the surgeon one picture, that tells him the answer. And the answer is don't use that right kidney. Go to the left kidney. Now, another example and a point to make. In terms of anatomy, you look at this patient, MIP imaging, and we say there's two left renal arteries and there's two left renal arteries on this volume rendered image as well. So if you ask me the question, what's better, MIPA volume rendering for counting renal arteries, I would say they're equal. Another example, three renal arteries, left and right, no problem. But one important thing that this image sequence will show you as you go to volume rendering on the right and MIPA on the left, is when you look at the venous anatomy, volume rendering shows the renal vein to be in the correct position anteriorly, MIP shows it posteriorly. We speak about this in different talks, but MIP, because of the projection technique, whatever is brightest, so arterial phase, the artery is brightest, seems closest to you, whatever is less bright seems posterior. And again, when you're doing laparoscopic surgery, you need to know the exact anatomy. So again, you want to be very, very accurate. And uh, for that reason, you never use MIP alone. I always typically use volume rendering. I may supplement MIP, but I always use volume rendering. And just another example, three right renal arteries, two left renal arteries. I think 3D also is particularly good when the vessels are really low-lying. In this case, you have renal arteries just above the level of the iliac. So that works indeed very, very nicely in that regard. In terms of small vessels, things we missed but are important in the past, this renal artery at the upper pole of the kidney on the left is two millimeters or less. But look how clearly we see it with 3D reconstructions. On the axial images, if I try really hard and position correctly, you can see what you think might be a one millimeter vessel. But gosh, look how easy it is to see when you take it and go into the 3D map. Look how obvious that vessel is. So again, this indeed becomes very, very critical to us. Our accuracy now is basically 100% at the volume rendered 64 slice level. In terms of the orientation of the vessel, again, MIP versus volume rendering, I just want you to focus on the third renal artery on the left side, the one that comes off the left common iliac. You see in the MIP image, it appears to rise laterally. On the volume, it appears to rise medially. And again, that's because with the MIP being a projection technique, you can't see its true origin. So again, another issue in terms of MIP versus volume rendering relates to vessel origin, which again can be extremely important with laparoscopic surgery. Now, in terms of renal arteries, some other things we can do, renal artery stenosis. We can do CT with volumes as low as 60 cc's to get good studies. You can see volume rendering, right renal artery stenosis in the 50% range. You can see the same thing with MIP imaging. Uh, volume rendering has been shown to be more accurate than MIP, but we do look at both, and uh, 
Volume rendering is particularly helpful when you have extensive calcification present where MIP tends to be very problematic. You also can use curved planar reconstructions in this sequence as well. So there are many things you can do. And again, a good rule to me is I look at the, the uh, stenosis in many planes to make sure I'm neither overcalling nor undercalling a specific lesion. Here's another example. Look at that significant stenosis with soft plaque, origent, right renal artery on MIP imaging, as well as on volume imaging. You can see here very well. One of the things with us doing so many CTAs, people ask me the question, do you need to look at all the vessels? The answer is yes. This was a study of the pancreas. You don't see very well the left renal artery stenosis um, on the axials or coronals, but look how nicely you see it on the 3D rendering. So again, you want to be very careful. You also want to make sure that if you're looking at the renal arteries and the mesenteric vessels are in the plane, look at them as well. The same thing holds true when you look at the mesenteric vessels. The renal artery is there. You've got to recognize that stenosis. It's just, we're just required to do that. I've showed you examples with both volume rendering and MIP. A big advantage also besides accuracy of volume rendering, you typically don't need any bone editing. Also, uh, although bone editing is not that difficult, it takes time. And if you're going to do MIP, you better do bone editing. Now, in terms of uh, looking at renal artery stenosis, by the way, the issue is always MRA versus CTA. There's no significant difference in the published literature, although patients seem to like CTA better. Well, that's not a surprise. You want a five-second study, or do you want to spend about an hour being banged on by a bunch of banging things? Well, whatever. But uh, nevertheless, MRA is great, CTA is great, but uh, patients do like CTA better. Now, one other thing with renal artery stenosis relates to stent. Stent evaluation, stent patency, we're doing a lot of it for carotids and coronaries and renals and aorta. You can see stents in this patient's, and let's focus on the left renal artery. You see very nicely a left renal artery stent, but there's not much you can say on the 3D image, whether I do it MIP or volume rendering. You see the stent there. What you want to do for stent evaluation is do curved planar reconstructions. Go straight through the body of the stent, as you can see here very nicely, and you get very nice visualizations of the stent. It's easy for us to determine stent patency, and in this case, the stent indeed was patent. A couple other topics in terms of renal arteries. One is fibromuscular dysplasia, so-called FMD, that goes by many different names. The classic appearance is a string of bead appearance, though you can see focal strictures or aneurysms and the like. The thing about CT is CT was always felt to be poor for fibromuscular dysplasia, but when you look back, there were very few articles written. The last article was at four slice, and so the world has changed. And these days, I feel very comfortable. Look at the right renal artery, being able to make the diagnosis of fibromuscular dysplasia. It's not a difficult diagnosis. You have that string of beads very nicely shown, and it's something that we could see routinely now that was more difficult in the past to be able to see because literally the quality of the studies is so much better. And here's a collage showing all four of those. Another thing to mention in terms of FMD is renal artery aneurysms, which is the second or third most common visceral artery aneurysm. Remember, splenic artery typically is first. Can be due to trauma, degenerative disease, vasculitis, and fibromuscular dysplasia. Typically, patients are asymptomatic, though others present with hypertension, not an uncommon presentation, theoretically rupture, hematuria, or thrombosis. 
And renal artery aneurysms, typically, if they're greater than two centimeters, are treated with surgery. Uh, underneath that, they may be uh, stented, uh, they may be followed. Again, age will have some uh, impact on decision-making. So a few examples, left renal artery aneurysm. Renal artery aneurysms, like splenic artery aneurysms, or even mesenteric artery aneurysms, are easy to miss at times on axial CT, like this, is when you do the 3D that they become very, very obvious. So we can see the aneurysm nicely. We can see some calcification in the wall of the aneurysm. Here's another example showing that. And here's the third example with calcifications on the wall of the aneurysm. So again, uh, most aneurysms are incidental. Most can be treated conservatively. Others will need surgery or other intervention. We can see following trauma, occasional cases of pseudoaneurysm. This is a very nice example of a patient with pain and hematuria a week post the major renal laceration. And this patient has a pseudoaneurysm very nicely shown. So that indeed is a very nice example of that point. Now we've finished the arteries, let's talk about the renal veins. But I think our time is up. Let's take a break and we'll come back with part four, starting with renal veins. Thanks very much.